The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show. On Relevant Radio. Let people see that witness. Why? Because 78% of post-abortion women said that if just one person had encouraged them to choose life or one encouraging sign, they would not have entered the abortion facility. Everybody, body of Christ, let's unite. Let's be truly American, truly patriotic, under life, liberty, and the pursuit of real happiness. The Drew Mariani Show. On Relevant Radio. Welcome back on this March for Life Day. I'm Ed Morrissey, filling in for Drew Mariani, taking your calls at 888-914-9149. Possibly the last March for Life that we'll have while Roe v. Wade is a controlling precedent. Of course, we don't know this yet. Uh, The Supreme Court will be deciding this probably at the very end, or at least they'll be publishing the decision, probably at the very end of their term, which is in the end of June. So we may have five or so months to, to find out what their decision is. But uh, we can certainly read tea leaves in the meantime and uh, certainly salute all of the fine people who are out uh, uh, demonstrating for life, demonstrating for the sacramental nature of life out in Washington, D.C. and around the country. There's marches for life going on all around the country. And, of course, right here at relevantradio.com slash fast, we are also committing ourselves to uh, – Uh, support through prayer and fasting for those people who are out there uh, demonstrating for the right to life. Uh, So we may have more on the, on the fast for life coming up, but right now let's turn our attention to economics, to the markets and who better to do that than with my friend, Peter Grandich. He is known as the former wall street whiz kid without even a high school diploma. He became half famous on wall street made and lost millions more than once in his book, Confessions of a Former Wall Street Whiz Kid, Peter tells about his incredible journey about how his Catholic faith led to true Christian conversion. He provides guidance on matters of finance through Peter Grandich and Company. And you can find out more about that with at petergranich.com. Just also as an aside, uh, Peter and I have been doing this for a few years now when I fill in. He's also on my podcast um, uh, as a regular as a regular commentator on my podcast as well. And uh, Peter and I become, have become friends and one thing I want to tell you about Peter is he's got the all-time uh, best uh, credibility bookshelf for Zoom calls. And uh, so we're going to get him on here in just a moment. But, um, but Peter, is, uh, Peter is just a great friend and an inspiration. You know, not too many people are willing to completely revamp their, the, the way that they make, earn a living by adhering uh, to to biblical values and to and, and by adhering to uh, how he hears himself being called and you don't find that at all I think on Wall Street let alone uh, a, 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 any other uh, form of business so Peter's always been an inspiration he's been an inspiration to me for quite some time he's been a good friend as well and uh, Peter's with us now Peter Granich from PeterGranich.com great to have you with us oh good to be with Ed. And uh, and you can find out you can find Peter on Twitter too at Peter Grandage. Um, he's very active on Twitter. And uh, Peter, I mean, we are we're entered. I, I wouldn't say uncharted territory. I know that we we talk about we've talked about this over the last few months. But I mean, I think that this is uh, we've seen we've seen the reports on on uh, inflation. This is not a transitory inflation, and this is I think a structural inflation that even the media is mostly missing here. I, the, the numbers that we're seeing are are you know they hearken back to the bad the bad days of 40 years ago but the reason for it kind of harkens back to the bad choices of 12 years ago 
which were very similar to the bad choices of 50 years ago. And that's uh, rapid monetary expansion with, um, uh, as, as a prop to an economy. And you and I have talked about this in the abstract. I think uh, your, your status as a prophet, I think, has, has been uh, confirmed over the last few months. Well, I, I appreciate the compliment. I wouldn't put myself in the in the profit category, knowing the great sinner that I am. But uh, I will say this: uh, you're absolutely right. And and what's different this time for those of us that are, you know, with a lot of gray hair or no hair, who remember the last time we had inflation crises in the '70s, is the difference between the rate of inflation and where current interest rates are are so much more dramatic now, meaning that real interest rates uh, are, are dramatically low because inflation is, listen, the government always cheats on it. It's cheated for as long as I've been in the business, 38 years. Right. It changes the basket when certain types of things get too high, food or otherwise. And, and people have argued they've done that so they don't have to pay as much in Social Security because Social Security is based on the CPI. But the bottom line is it, it's very hard to find anything that hasn't gone up double-digit. I mean, you talk to people, whether it's in the food business or whatever, uh, they're paying some things 30 40 50% more than they were paying a year or so ago. So as much as you think rates have somewhat come up uh, from their lows, the spread is dramatic. So you have to ask yourself this, Ed, and this is what befuddles me that, well, I don't expect it on on financial networks because they're very tilted to the people that they, you know, sell ads to. But right. if you think about this, the Fed is supposed to just remove itself. It's not going to create all that money anymore. It's not going to buy all those bonds. And mind you, they haven't done that yet. They've talked that they're going to do it, but they actually haven't done it yet. And of course, there's $64,000 question is, will they chicken out again and, and pull away from it? But let's just say that for, they, for once they actually honor their words and they go ahead and they do that. The Fed has been half, sometimes two-thirds of the purchasing of the what, bonds that we had to float to keep the government going. So if they just remove themselves, my question is, who replaces them? And if you do replace them, will that party want to take a 2% 10-year bond if inflation is 6 or 8%? No. So uh, one of the things that has to happen is, is rates have to go up a lot or they have to somehow get inflation lower. Well, that listen, we almost had to go into depression in the 70s by Volcker in order to get the, the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. And I, we don't have that political will anymore. There's, there's no way people are in the same manner that they were back then. And also, there, there's a tremendous amount of troubles ahead because what you and I have talked about, you can't print trillions and trillions of dollars out of the air and then expect not to pay for it somehow. It's just like you know, eating way more than you should be and putting on an extra 100 pounds and expect everything is going to still be the same when you are 100 pounds lighter. And, and that's where we're at, Ed. And uh, the markets, you know, like I said, I've called it the greatest uh, financial bubble of all time. I'm not alone in that. I did something 
that I had only done once before my entire career, and that was in the fall, that I made cash, my largest single position, and people scoffed. I mean, people wrote things in, you know, in, in the comment sections of YouTubes when I did interviews, and why do you want cash? It only pays one-tenth of one percent. I says, well, if things are 20, 30, 40 percent cheaper in a year or two, you're going to wish you had cash. Nah, you're crazy, you old guys. You don't know. This is a, this is a new paradigm. This is, you know, this is all different now and of course you know their ultimate uh, cult thing was uh, bitcoin and the bottom line was here we are just three four five months later across the board uh, there are stocks that everybody seemingly was talking about six or twelve months ago they're down 30 50 70 percent so you know I, I i don't know how anybody can expect a quick fix in this. I I think it's a lifetime. I think it's going to take a generation, uh, and uh, I think things have to get worse before they can get better. Well, and what I, you know, we're, we're speaking with Peter Grandage at petergrandage.com, taking your calls at 888-914-9149. We do have a caller on the line. We're going to get to that call in just a moment, so please be patient. We'll be right with you. But I, I just want to point this out before we move on to practical matters of, of investment and, and, and the markets which is that Politico actually had a very interesting profile of Thomas Honig, who was a um, member of the Federal Reserve, who ended up being more or less pushed out because he refused to go along with uh, Ben Bernanke's monetary expansion policy because he, and he warned at the time that this was about to set up an asset bubble and an inflationary wave because it's exactly the same thing that the Fed did in the early 1970s and it created a, a decade of inflation and stagflation until, as you just mentioned, Paul Volcker had to step in and really jack the rates way up, uh, Peter. And 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 he's and Thomas Honig is warning that it's going to that we already are in that kind of an asset bubble and that we are um um and, and that we're gonna end up having to have the Fed do the exact same thing again to pull us out of this inflationary wave because simply just changing um, you know, budgetary policy in Washington isn't going to suffice. That may have may have provided the catalyst for this wave, but just simply, you know, cutting back on spending in Congress isn't going to be enough. Well, well, here's the big challenge to that, Ed. We were the world's largest creditor nation in the 70s. Right. We're not that anymore, okay? So uh, the problem when you start talking about, well, raising interest rates a lot and things of that nature and all, Listen, there are people, uh, I, I still see it in, in what's left of my career. I still see all walks of families, the 20 years I dealt with athletes, I still say it. Six, seven, or eight out of ten families live at least one financial level above where their finances truly support. And part of the reason they were able to do that, because debt became cheaper and cheaper, more things were given to them or excused and, and, and not have to live up to. But there comes a point in time where we can't even get by that. Listen, we've had a study out this week. 60% of all Americans don't even have $1,000 saved for an emergency. Look what happened as soon as everything shut down. Within a couple of weeks, people literally needed money handed out just to, to survive to the next day. So... 
again, I've always said this, Ed. I said it to you when when I speak to you here and in your own hotair.com and with Drew. People don't like hearing this. I wasn't invited to parties in the last year or two <laughs> because, you know, who wants to hear this guy, you know? And, uh, you know, and then the biggest thing that the most abuse I ever gotten in, I'm thir- at this 38 years, was when I decided to come out of the closet and say, hey, you know, Bitcoin is the poster child for the biggest speculative bubble of all time. 65,000 sell it. It's like AOL. Oh, my God. When I can tell you some of the, no, I can't say it on the air, what some of the people said and did and the actions that they did. But it was just a symptom, and there's so many other things we can point to of how much excess there's been. And here's the biggest problem, Ed, and this, this falls into your strength. When we had past crises, even back as early as 2008, the party still were able to go in a room and kind of work something out. It wasn't a great solution, yeah. but they got a solution. And I don't think these guys could ever get in the same room, I don't know, maybe again in my lifetime. The, the, this, the, the hatred, I mean, pure evil hatred, uh, if tomorrow suddenly it, it required it, uh, do you really think we have the political leadership? I mean, I, I'm going to say this, and maybe just going to maybe get half the audience upset, but I hope Biden never has a two-hour conference again. I don't think we can afford another two-hour press conference by him. Right. Uh, right. There, there's just no political will or leadership, and the Fed appointed itself both the fiscal and monetary uh, guardian. And by the way, Ed, look how many of these guys were actually trading their own accounts and buying and selling stocks. And, you know, we can look back. They they, they left now, the guys at least we know of that did. But did they have a bias to keep this, you know, punch bowl going because their personal wealth gained? It certainly did by what we saw. So there are a whole host of things that just – you know, are we oversold? Yeah. You know, did this did this market get oversold? Can it bounce next week and all? But if anybody thinks this is just a, a blip and an otherwise, you know, happy ending story, I, I think that they're going to be sadly mistaken. I do, too. We're speaking with Peter Grandich of PeterGrandich.com. Let's go to the phones. Pat in Minneapolis wants to join the conversation, has a great question about bonds and inflation. Pat, welcome to the show. Hi. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad he's on because I really like his advice and all that. Um, I have a question on U.S. bonds. After so many years, they come due. These are like series double E. And so um, we cashed them in, and I wanted to use the proceeds. And um, I've heard of and have had in the past something called I-bonds. They're like, um, I don't know if they call them series I. They're similar to like the um, U.S. bonds. But um, they said they were paying 7.15% interest, and it goes up with inflation. And I think you have to hold them five years, I guess. Maybe you have to hold, I don't know. But I was wondering what he thought of that and if that might be helpful in this period of what we probably are going to be seeing with inflation. I remember Carter's years, and when we got our house in 1982, our mortgage rate was 12%. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And, and Pat, I, I remember those days as well. Um, I wasn't in the market for houses at that time, but, um, but I remember them extremely well. And I remember that um, I grew up in Southern California, so there was a um, real estate bubble that took place at almost the exact same time that ended up busting, I think it was in 78 or 79. And so it was, it was amazing churn that was going on there. Peter, uh, 
you're my favorite uh, person to ask about this type of advice too. Um, series I bonds yeah. um, indexed to inflation is that a is that a good idea or should we be looking for those those types of well, investments or yeah. would you go a different direction? Yeah, <clears throat> you certainly want something that can increase in terms of the interest payment based on inflation going up. You know, the days of uh, zero interest rates and near zero in, uh, inflation are long gone, okay? I can't speak to that thing specifically. What I can tell you is is that the bigger concern that I have, and, and, and I don't want to overskip, and I, I, if the ma'am is still listening, I'm not trying to answer her. Again, it is something you should consider, but you need I need – I would need to know a whole lot more about you, and I don't like to give cookie-cutter advice, you know, one-size-fits-all stuff. But here's here's the concern I would have for your listening audience, Ed, that I don't think has been addressed at all on Wall Street or in the, you know, the, the spectrums where people speak about investments at all. I live in a 55 and over community. Everybody knows what I've done. So anytime I walk down to the community or community center, they'll ask me about the markets. What do you think it is stocking at? And what I found here in all the areas I still speak to and the interviews that I still do is I found a lot of older people, many who are already in retirement or close to retirement, because the Fed destroyed the fixed income market where you couldn't go down. And, you know, in the old days when you were financial advisor, Ed, you didn't like stocks, you put people in fixed income. Okay, a Ginnie Mae's right. paying 8%. Okay, that's good. You know, they're not going to lose their principal. That's gone. That was gone. So where did these people go? They went into more riskier things, and they also went into a lot of dividend-paying public company stocks that pay dividends. And they don't understand the ramifications of, unlike a bond, there's no certainty that that company is going to continue paying that dividend or at least at that rate. And if we are going to have higher interest rates and we are going to have a tougher time in the economy, a lot of those companies are not going to be able to continue to support those dividends. And all I hear from those people that did that, that have put a lot of money into dividend-paying stocks is beat. I don't care if the stock goes down 20 or 30% on paper. I don't. You know, I left it for my kids or whatever. Just don't cut that interest rate because I can't continue my, my style of living. And that's what I think is going to be the story we're going to hear from investors over the coming months and the next couple of years who bought dividend-paying stocks that got cut. What do I do now, Mr. Granich, or whoever they're speaking to or calling in and so forth. That's going to be the biggest story that is yet to be answered, and uh, it's going to be an issue. And uh, I can't tell you that how in the senior level, uh, the younger kids, you know, they were more growth stocks and things of that nature, but a lot of people bought a lot of stocks simply because of the dividends that they were paying. Well, and Peter, again, we're speaking with Peter Grandage of PeterGrandage.com and taking your calls at 888-914-9149. And, and Peter, I mean, people are looking at these types of strategies too, and even if they're not buying these things directly. I mean, a lot of people are involved in, you know, retirement funds that are managed by other people, right? Or, or you're, uh, or you've got some sort of a um, investment counselor who is our investment broker who is putting you into these sort of mixed market funds and calculating, you know, percentage of risk factors and stuff like that. And I mean, it's a, it's, it's a very complicated thing to, to manage. And I think a lot of people right now are looking at this and Going off the basis, uh, the assumption that the previous 30 years or so, 35 years or so, the strategies that worked over those previous 35 years are going to continue to work without realizing that what we're seeing right now is really, truly sort of transformational, at least for, at least for the time being. 
markets, the market's going to react to this massive inflation, and it's really going to be a challenge to to strategize how you, where you put your money, especially if you're coming up to retirement. I agree with you fully, and I and, and I want to hop on two points of many that I've hopped on for months that I think are critical. One very much pertains to what you just spoke about. I have noted to people, in fact, I joked about it today by putting up a, on my Twitter the old E-Trade babies when they were trading at two years and then they lose their money because not too long ago, a year ago, there were these 21- and 22-year-old uh, stock market Internet sensations that were born out of the pandemic, and the financial networks were having these guys on, and they were, you know, their le- really only previous mathematical challenge was a few years ago in high school in algebra class, and yet they were telling everybody what they should buy and sell and so forth. And the reason I brought that up is over half the licensed financial advisors in, in this country right now have only been practicing since the last financial crisis right many of these folks never driven on a two-way street and listen it's not that they're dishonest or anything this is what they got used to and accustomed to and so i i I always say to people i remember the first time i went i still do ed when my when i was in driver's ed and they took me to a traffic circle i died i i didn't know (laughs) what to do and and i kind of portray it to people as that's what we're going to face from the professionalism and here's the biggest part before we run out of time and i've I emphasize this to people. The stock market that I started in 30, 38 years ago doesn't exist anymore. It was yeah. 90% public trading by the public. There were only two stock exchanges at the time. The one you still see now on financial networks, that might as well be a museum. Most of the trading happens at off exchanges. But half the, over half of capital until recently was in passive funds, which means it's not actively managed. People are in it. It's tracking some index or some group or what have you. So it just kind of sits there. The manager didn't have to make a decision each day. Should I buy this one? Should I sell this one? But if people start to want to liquidate out, then he has no choice or she has no choice and has to liquidate versus, no, I'm going to hold on because I think this one's good. The remaining half, about 80% of that's in two different categories, both being driven by computer decisions. One, algorithms that are just trading on basis of headlines and words. So if there's something said or done, the computer acts. Or it's some sophisticated quantitative program which involves shorting options, being long this. The days of what the stock market was originally created for when Ed, when I entered to be part owner of a business is long gone. And yeah. you know I've called it a very high-tech casino. And the only thing I know about casinos is they normally always win. <laughs> and the people right, that yes. enter them don't win. And I, and I think, unfortunately, that, that's where we're at. And, and we don't, people don't have an understanding of that. And uh, I just feel with the, the, the lack of professionalism experience-wise, the, the way it's been uh, made into, and we are in the worst economic, social, and political era in the United States history. I know, other than possibly the Civil War, we've never been more divided politically and socially. So all those things combined and all, it's not surprising what's happening here. Is there a relief coming potentially for term? Yes. Can the Fed cave again and not cut rates? And would that give a lift maybe to the market? Yeah, absolutely. 
But I think people are going to have a chance now to see how bad things have been pushed under the carpet. And so even if they cave again, people are going to realize that's going to be a bad choice after a while, too. So I don't think there's any way out. I think we have to go through a very, very tough and long period of time of pain. And and, and like I've always said, less is more is the way to go. Less is more and stay out of debt. Stay away from debt. Try to clear the, try to clear the debt to the extent that you can because that gives you the safest position uh, for the, for the uh, currents to come, I think, in, uh, fi- in finances, both the markets and personal finances. Peter, Peter Grandich, thank you so much for being with us. You can find out more at petergrandich.com, and he's here regularly. He's also on my pa- podcast regularly. We're going to do that pretty quickly, I think, with Peter. So be sure to tune in. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Deacon Stephen Gray Donis about what's coming up in the movies, what's what was great in 2021, what might be great in 2022. I'm Ed Morrissey filling in for Drew, and we'll be right back. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester. This is the Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. It's 30 minutes past the hour. I'm Ed Morrissey of hotair.com filling in for Drew on this March for Life Friday Maybe, maybe we pray the last March for Life Friday where Roe v. Wade is actually still in force. And we hope we pray we fast here at Relevant Radio. And so many folks are are following along. We now have well over 7,400 participants in RelevantRadio.com's Fast for Life. That's RelevantRadio.com slash fast. That's where you sign up. And then you use hashtag Fast for Life on all of your social media accounts to express your support for the people who are out there at the March for Life and for an, uh, for, uh, an end to abortion. Uh, and we've talked about this. Let me just talk about some of some of the sacrifices that people are making. It doesn't have to be a big sacrifice, just a meaningful sacrifice, just a something that gets you engaged, uh, that that has you in a prayerful um, solidarity with the people who are out marching. I, we've talked about what some of the people have done. Uh, let's tell you where these people have been at in the in the uh, relevantradio.com slash fast fast for life. Uh, all fifty states. We've gotten people from all fifty states, and. A few different countries as well. Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Canada, Ecuador, Honduras, India, Ireland, Jamaica, Mexico, Nigeria, Philippines, Poland, Portugal, South Africa, Switzerland, United Kingdom, and Vietnam. And probably by the time we get a chance to say this, still more. And it's still going on. It is not too late to sign up. You can sign up at relevantradio.com fast. You can just go to the main website and look for the banner if that's easier for you. Or you can go to the Relevant Radio app and sign up there. Just do a pledge for a for a small sacrifice just to express your solidarity. RelevantRadio.com slash fast. It's great, and it's a great way to just be involved in what we're hoping is going to be a historic March for Life. Um, we'll know more in June, probably, but we're hoping that it's going to be the last one. Now we're going to turn our eyes to the weekend. We're going to turn our eyes to some entertainment. And joining us today for that is Deacon Stephen Gray Donis. He's the creator of DecentFilms.com, a member of the New York Film Critics Circle, 
and a permanent deacon in the Archdiocese of Newark. He has written for the National Catholic Register and Our Sunday Visitor, among others. Deacon Stephen, welcome to the show. Ed, it's always great to talk to you. Oh, it's so much fun. I, I, you know, I love movies, but I, I am going to have to probably shamefully admit that I have seen uh, the, the, the list of some of the top films from 2021, and I have to shamefully admit, I don't think I saw a single one of them. <laughs> I'm not sure what I've been watching all year. It hasn't, apparently hasn't been good. And my wife is probably going to be the first one to say, see, I told you, you don't have taste and, uh, in movies. Anyway, so. Well, you know, in, in your defense, <laughs> um, some of the year's best films have been box office bombs that nobody saw, or in some cases, foreign films or indies. There, there were, um, um, some that were, were big and, uh, that a lot of people saw in theaters. And the good news is, in the streaming world in which we live, you can always catch up on them in the year to come. Well, this is true, and some of them, some of them were coming out almost at the same time, almost simultaneously in the streaming world. And maybe that's a maybe that's maybe not quite a, 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 the defense of myself as as I'd like to as I'd like to say. But uh, but yeah, I mean there there are there's a lot of complaints about Hollywood. There's a lot of complaints about um, the fare that they produce um, about about it being you know, politically didactic about it being, you know, too, uh, uh, too politically correct or, or, or woke. But as you are, as you were putting out there, there's a number of, there's a number of really good films out there. If we look for them, we can find them. And, and, and Hollywood or, or maybe better, better expressed the entertainment industry, because I think Hollywood is, I think people think of that in terms of sort of the traditional studio system. There's so many more options out there for, for the sourcing of these. Uh, but you do have to be discerning. And, and that's the reason why, you know, decentfilms.com is a great resource so that we can be discerning. We can, we can get some help with that discernment. You, you do have to be discerning. And um, sometimes depending on what's in studios or what's in theaters rather at, at the moment, you may have to, you know, uh, go a little further afield than normal. For instance, right now, if you want to find anything playing on a screen that's not Spider-Man Far From Home, <laughs> yeah, good luck, because it's playing on all the screens and all the multiplex down the street from me, and, and you know, with good reason. It's by far the year's most popular film, and as a lifelong Spider-Man fan, by far my favorite superhero of all time, I have to say I enjoyed it a lot. Um, it's It's not anywhere near in the same league as Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, um, which is, I think, possibly the, the best superhero movie ever made, my favorite animated film in the last 10 years, and I'm really looking forward to the sequel that's coming in October. Uh, but there are good movies, uh, not only on streaming right now, uh, but also in theaters. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, I went to see Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, and I am not a huge Leonard Bernstein fan, but I loved it. I think it's great, and I think people are going to be watching it. Even though it's a box office disappointment, I think 100 years from now, people are still going to be watching this movie. Why do you think it was a box office disappointment? I mean, you got Spielberg. I mean, it's not that Spielberg's never had a bomb. I mean, 1941 comes to mind. But, um, and he's had some films that were really well done but just didn't catch, right? I mean, I think AI... I. I I was kind of disappointed in the ending of AI, but it's really well done. It's very thoughtful, and it really didn't, really didn't catch. You know, um, what happened with West Side Story? Why didn't it? Why didn't it not catch? 
Uh, it's a good question, and a lot of people are asking that question. I think it's a factor. I think it's, it's a number of factors. One of them is maybe just the material, even though it's familiar. Um, it seems kind of old hat. You know, uh, there's, there's a lot of new musical energy right now. Um, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda is certainly uh, writing a lot of stuff. And, and maybe West Side Story seemed a little stodgy at first. And also, you know, the pandemic uh, is, is hurting practically everything at the box office that's not Spider-Man. And then I think that's the final piece of the puzzle is when people go to the movies, it has to be something that they perceive as being an event. And when you get Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield out of Spider-Man Retirement, along with Tom Holland, not to mention uh, actors who've played some of the most popular villains of the last 20 years of Spider-Man movies, Willem Dafoe, Alfred Molina, Thomas Baden Church, Jamie Foxx. That's the movie that people are going to go see. And I think they will catch up with West Side Story on the small screen. It's kind of a shame because it really is a big dynamic film. And I enjoyed seeing it on the big screen a lot. Interesting about uh, the Spider-Man Far From Home because the the villains in those uh, movies are are all really good actors. I mean, really good actors. Willem Dafoe, Alfred Molina, uh, Jamie Foxx is just fantastic. Um, and and I love Thomas Hayden Church. He, I don't think he does enough stuff. I was you know I was just watching Sideways, just not too long ago, maybe a few weeks ago. I was just watching Sideways and just remembering how good Thomas Hayden Church is and um, wondering why we don't see more of him. And, uh, and, and I haven't seen Far From Home. I, I have not seen that film. But it was just the setup for that looked like so much fun. You can understand why this is the, the, uh, the biggest uh, grossing film of the year. It looks like a lot of fun. It looks like uh, the type of popcorn movie that, that, is, that is oriented to just allowing people to have some joy in, in this particular fictional world. And it really does that. And, and I think, you know, leaning into the emotional poignancy that Molina brought to his uh, performance as Dr. Octopus in Spider-Man 2, uh, all the way back in 2004, uh, to um, Willem Dafoe, who just is scarier when he laughs, I think, than yeah. anyone has ever been in any MCU movie, any Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. He's just he's just really incredible, and and you don't you know it's it's a, it's really interesting how you know I, I think the MCU at this point is at its best when it's when it's leaning on mythology from outside itself, um, from the Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield films. So there were a couple other blockbusters that you that you really liked. Um, these were also event films. Um, I never saw A Quiet Place. Uh, so I didn't have any any reason to go see A Quiet Place Part Two. I, I heard great things about it, um, and of course uh, the the actors in it are top are, are top notch. Not usually the type of um, uh, the level of actors that you would normally see in. Uh, I'm not sure. Is this horror or is it suspense? Uh, I I kind of thought it was. I thought kind of thought it was horror, but I've I've been told that no, it's more more suspense. Horror gets a bad rap because people associate it with the slasher subgenre of horror. True, uh, but but to me, because the creatures in this film really elicit an existential dread, I would classify it as horror. I, I hesitate. I'm not going to use the phrase um, um, 
elevated horror because I think that's a that's a marketing term. I think horror can be as good or as bad as the filmmakers want to make it. But what I think people are getting at when they try to suggest it's not a horror film is that it's the kind of horror film, and this is true both of the original A Quiet Place and of the sequel, in which extremely abnormal circumstances, instead of subverting ordinary life, highlight the ordinariness of normal human life, of, of, and especially of family relations, of the relationship between Krasinski's and Emily Blunt's character in the first film, and now uh, between Emily Blunt and, and her children in this film. It's, it's a horror film that knows what ordinary life is about, and that is what gives it its particular character. And um, we're speaking with Deacon Stephen Gradonis of DecentFilms.com, taking your calls at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. And I, the one film that I really wish I had gone out to see, and I, I, I know I can still access it, but I ha just haven't made the effort to do it, is Dune. I am sort of a weird fan. I'd never read the books. I am sort of a weird fan of David Lynch's vision of, of this <laughs> In, in uh -huh. 84, I mean, I know it's supposed to be, you know, not really a great uh, interpretation that David Lynch just was being David Lynch for a lot of this. I know David Lynch himself is is disappointed because he felt that it was, um, you know, th that the studio interfered way too much in this and it, 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 it changed the outcome of this film. But I am, I actually really... <laughs> still really like that film i i i i love the ending of it i love i love kyle mclaughlin as paul atreides and so i guess i was a little trepidatious about this thinking uh you know the, the, this is going to be it's it's going to be too different for me to to really get into it was though one of your uh top um, uh, top blockbuster favorites this year Yes, yeah. along with A Quiet Place 2, uh, we've got two science fiction films here about a widowed mom and her offspring um, trying to survive in a hostile landscape of monsters. Um, like you, I have never read the Frank Herbert novels, and I was not, I'm not terribly attached to the David Lynch film. I think there's a lot of reasons why it's perceived as disappointing, and a lot of reasons why it's interesting, but... In the time since then, you know, between the Star Wars movies and the Matrix, um, uh, even to something like Hayao Miyazaki's Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind, um, there's, there's so much that Dune has influenced. And when you take a filmmaker like Denis Veneuve, who, who did Arrival, one of my favorite uh, films of, of that year, um, and you oh, allow yeah. him to, to do what he does, which is to visualize... Um, worlds that really give him a chance to explore his his uh, his knack for scope and and for vastness. Um, it, it really is a sight to see, and 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 it is, I think, the movie of 2021 that best rewarded the big screen experience. I've seen it on both the big and the small screens, and I like it a lot, in spite of my lack of prior connection to the mythology. And I'm really looking forward to doing part two. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure how they broke this up. Um, so because I haven't seen it, and I guess I probably should go see it before I before I comment on that. But it's it's sometimes difficult to to get into the one film when you know that there's going to have to be a sequel to it. I mean, I think The Lord of the Rings was probably one of the great exceptions to that rule. But when when you're in the middle of a film and you know that there's going to be a sequel to it, I it, because you have to have more than one film to tell the story. I, I it, it, 
I think there's a struggle to to sort of commit yourself to that because you're thinking, especially these days, maybe they should have just done it on you know HBO or Amazon Prime or something like that and done it as a as a miniseries. Well, then you would have needed to get somebody besides Veneuve because he he shoots for the big screen. He shoots right. big images, big spaceships, big landscapes, big buildings. Um, he really he leans into brutalism as as a source of inspiration, brutalist architecture, which yep. I don't like in real life, but I realized watching this movie, I really like brutalism on the big screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you don't have to live in it, and you don't have to live around exactly. it. But, but but for for that type of imagery, for that type of impact, absolutely. And I I, I get exactly what you're talking about. And you know, I would say that you know, I saw the I saw Lynch's Dune on the small screen. I think it would be even more impactful had I seen that in the theater. And and I don't remember why. Probably because I hadn't read the novel, so I didn't go. I didn't bother to go see this. So I I was only catching it when it hit cable. And I just I I've always been impressed, even though I know it's a very flawed uh, movie. But I am glad to hear that you you enjoyed Dune so much. We got about thirty seconds before we go to the break. I'll let you follow up on that. Um, uh, from a, from an acting point of view, I want to say I really appreciate what Rebecca Ferguson in particular brought to the character of Lady Jessica. Um, there's a there's a really interesting scene. It's the trial scene where they make um, uh, the the hero put his hand into a box and it causes him pain. And there's there's the ma- the mantra of of Frank Herbert fears the mind killer that Paul Atreides recites to himself. In this version, in in the news version, it's his mother standing outside the door who's who's reciting, and you really see the, the kind of the mother's share and the passion of her son. You know, and uh, and again, I, th- these are the moments I think that really make films like this. And we're going to talk more about the about uh, Deacon Stephen Gray Donis's uh, film reviews from 2021 when we come back, including what his favorite films of the year are. I mean, there, there's some really interesting ones. You're going to want to stick around for that. I'm Ed Morrissey filling in for Drew Mariani. We'll be right back. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester. It's 49 minutes past the hour. I'm Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com, filling in for Drew today, taking your calls at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149, talking with Deacon Stephen Gray Dennis of DecentFilms.com, talking about the the, the year in cinema and uh, what, what his favorite films have been and, um, and maybe what's coming up in... In 2022, Deacon Stephen, as always, great to great to have you with us. Um, you know, one of the things before we get to your favorite films, we should probably talk a little bit about family films, right? Because this is it's 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 tough to find good films. It's also tough. It's maybe even tougher to find good family films. And a lot of people that are listening to this show really want to make sure that they that's what they're getting when they when they go to the theater. Were there 
really top top quality family films this year that people could feel comfortable taking their children to um and maybe what were the best of those you know for me 2021 was an off year for family films and i I don't want to take anything away from the movies that a lot of people have enjoyed i've heard from people who really enjoyed Pixar's Luca or Disney's Riot and the Last Dragon and, and Encanto right now, which is on Disney Plus, is uh, so many people are writing to tell me how much they enjoyed it. And I really feel like a kind of a kind of Grinch for saying that my family and I were kind of disappointed. Um, but there is one film which I was a huge fan of. Uh, I thought it was the best animated film of last year and and the best family film, Sony's The Mitchells versus The Machines. And and for what it's worth, uh, enough of my peers in the New York Film Critics Circle thought so that we gave that our best animated film award. Uh, This comes from the producers of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Chris Miller and Phil Lord, uh, co-written and directed by Mike Rianda. And it's about a dysfunctional family saving the world from the robot apocalypse. So... (laughs) It's frenetic and hyperactive, but it has something in common, like we were saying before the break, with with A Quiet Place 2. This is also one of those movies that uses extreme circumstances in order to highlight a very ordinary an ordinary family dynamics. And um, it's it's just it's the group huggest and feel goodest of family films that I've seen in a long time. And uh, we've seen it twice now. We really enjoyed it. The Mitchells versus the Machines. The Mitchells versus the Machines. So that's something, if you're looking for family films, that you should be looking at. Um, all right, you mentioned a couple um, that you really thought were top top of the line in, in, in 2021. And, um, and well, one that's actually, uh, that's coming in here in this uh, next week or, or uh, on Amazon um, Amazon Prime Video, which is a hero. You're going to have a you're going to have a review of that coming up pretty quick. Yes, yes. Uh, this is from the Iranian filmmaker Asghar Farhadi, uh, whose 2011 film A Separation would have been my number one film of that year if of gods and men had not come out in the same year. That that bumped it down to number two. Um, but but in a hero, he does the thing that he does, which is to um, tell stories about likable characters who are trying to do the right thing, more or less. But he brings this extraordinary moral precision to that little bit of wiggle room between the right thing and the almost right thing. And then really explores how that compounds and spirals out of control. In this case, you have a story about a man who is in prison. It's de- he's in debtor's prison for being unable to repay a debt. He seems like a really sympathetic guy. He's got a plan to pay back the money. Then he decides to do something else. He, he has this fr- lost money, and he decides to try to return it to the original owner. And at first, it seems like he's done a great thing, and everybody's on his side. And then I, I'm not even going to try to to you the way that it goes south from there but he has a lot of empathy for these characters and at the same time we see the mistakes that people make that lead them step by step astray well and i think that that's the type of film that you know certainly um certainly speaks i think to people who are looking for the spiritual you know uh, i want to say virtue-based um component to to that type of entertainment things that make you think and you know that doesn't necessarily mean that everything works out great you know there's a there's a there's a uh, a great um optimistic 
uh, thread through a lot of faith-based films. I, not, I don't know if Hero is really a faith-based film, but when we're talking about virtues and, and, and that sort of thing, I mean, you do have to kind of show the opposite, you know, when things can go wrong. And when you have those sort of, um, I would call it ethic, you know, ethically complicated situations, if it's done really well, I mean, it really sticks with you, makes you think. And I love films that do that. Nobody does it better than Farhadi. Uh, and, and that's, that's true of a separation. And it's true of this movie, a hero. And, and as you point out, that kind of optimism that in, in so many faith-based films, you know, you have a, a character who's struggling and everything's going wrong in their lives. And then they pray really hard and they commit their life to God. And then everything turns around and it's all sunshine and roses. This guy, I think, is, is at a low ebb toward the end of the film when he makes the best decision that we've seen him make throughout the film. And even though it doesn't turn things around for him, you really see it as a moment of grace, which is what I was looking for the whole film. Is there going to be a moment of grace? And it comes at the end of Asghar Farhadi's A Hero, as you say, playing on Amazon Prime Video. And that's coming up. But um, you, you're, I'm assuming this is your favorite film of the year. Is it called Come On, Come On? And and this is a film um, that involves a radio show host. So this is something I really, really should have seen <laughs> at this point, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, come on, come on from, from Mike Mills. This is the movie that fits into that sweet spot along with movies like Patterson and The Station Agent and Brooklyn. Um, I, I call them antidote movies. They're the, they're the antidote for all of the, the heavy drama and intense situations of so many of the year's best films. This is a very quiet film about a man living in New York, working, as you say, as a radio journalist, um, whose semi-estranged sister out in California suddenly needs him. She's got to go take care of some family business, and her quirky nine-year-old son, Jesse, needs watching. He doesn't know Johnny, who's played by Joaquin Phoenix, um, and, and was really, you really get to see him play a very ordinary man here. We, we associate Phoenix with extreme roles like the Joker. Watch him in Come On, Come On as he's trying to take care of this kid and, you know, kind of negotiate what it's like to be a surrogate parent. And this kid has some weird issues and, and he, he has some unexpected needs. And, you know, the, the awkward kind of uncle-nephew relationship could be kind of sentimental, um, but the director, Mike Mills, really uses it to, um, to, to shape how our hero's relationship with his sister develops and, and to really explore um, you know, this, this odd period in Jesse's life. Come on, come on. Is, it's just a movie about love and full of empathy, and you feel better about life after having seen it. That's the kind of movie that Come On, Come On is. It, it sounds just a little bit. I, and again, I haven't seen Come On, Come On, but it sounds just a little bit like About a Boy, which was um, an interesting and an unusual film for Hugh Grant to make, where it just, you, it was about this uh, this adult-child relationship that was, you know, not not par not parental, and in, in some cases, not even mature. <laughs> but but I, I just found that to be a really interesting, sort of a smaller film, and really... Uh, focusing on, uh, I think, real human emotions. I, I don't know if you, I don't know if you recall about a boy. I'm assuming that you do. Oh, I do, I do, and I, I think that's a really interesting connection that I, I've never heard anyone make. I would really love to talk to you after you watch Come On, Come On. I, I, I think it's, it's certainly it's a less commercial film than About a Boy, and one right. of the things yep. is the black and white cinematography, uh, which, which for me. 
um, kind of situates it as a film about memory. It gives us a little bit of emotional distance on, on the characters. Um, but where Hugh Grant's character is really kind of uh, unable to connect to people, um, Johnny, Johnny has different issues. They're, they're family issues they have to do with his family past. Deacon Stephen Green, Donis, um, we're gonna we're gonna have to leave it at that. Okay. We're, the time is up. Decentfilms.com, go check it out. I'm Ed Morrissey, filling in for Drew. Have a wonderful weekend.